Welcome back to the Afros and Knives podcast, the interview series that elevates the stories and profiles of Black women working in food and beverage, hospitality, food justice, food science, and food media. I am your host, Tiffany Rozier, and this week's episode is a conversation with the energetic and indefatigable Zoe Ajanya. This episode was one of few that presented quite a few obstacles. We attempted it several times, had some tech challenges, but the push was worth it. We ended up talking for about two hours, and so this episode is in two parts. Part one is available anywhere you may podcast, and part two will be available to Patreon members only through the weekend, and then available to everyone else next week. So if you want to hear the complete interview today, make sure you head on over to the Patreon page and become a member. I want to thank the Chef's Advocate for sponsoring this episode. The Chef's Advocate is a boutique consulting agency representing a global cross-section of culinary professionals. They continue to make a positive impact on their clients and the lives of the many people working in the industry. So be sure to go follow the Chef's Advocate on Instagram and Facebook. While 2020 has been challenging, which sounds like an understatement, a few trends have made me hopeful. One of them is the return to home cooking. The pandemic changed how we eat and how we share meals. So as we begin to turn the corner into fall and winter, into the holidays and giving season, cookbooks should be on the top of everybody's list. One of the gifts that this year has given us is the release of Chef Bryant Terry's book, Vegetable Kingdom. In Vegetable Kingdom, Chef Terry breaks down the fundamentals of plant-based cooking. This is his fifth cookbook and it offers recipes that put vegetables front and center. It also offers a list of tools that you will need that will help you during your process. One of the dopest playlists I have ever seen on this side of Spotify is also in this book. And I'm talking about Stevie Wonder, Lil Wayne, Miles Davis, Outkast, Sarah Vaughn, Janelle Monet. I am a huge, huge advocate for playing music while I cook, while I prep, while I eat. And so this soundtrack was really incredible. It's super thoughtful, really well curated. I mean, when was the last time you got a cookbook that offered a soundtrack? Vegetable Kingdom is available anywhere books are sold and the playlist is available on Spotify. So I suggest you just hurry on over there, hit it up. And then while you're over there, Afros and Knives has a Spotify for the, uh, the book club. Go ahead and grab that too. Thank you to the Afros and Knives patrons for your support. None of this would be possible without you. To become a patron, you want to visit patreon.com backslash Afros and Knives. If you love this podcast and you want to continue to support it and see it grow, be sure to follow, subscribe, share, and comment. Believe me, the comments, the follows, the sharing, when you hit that subscribe button, all of that makes a huge difference. It tells me that, you know, I'm on the right track. I'm interviewing the right guest and we're talking about the right stuff. I'll stop talking and we can just go ahead and get into this interview. Uh, first of all, I'd say thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on the Afros and Nice podcast. I've been literally gagging to get on this podcast since I've seen it existed. <laughs> so thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Zoe Ajonia. I'm a chef, writer, activist and Sherpa. Uh, for the Ghanaian food. So basically, I'm a third culture kid, the daughter of an Irish mother 
and a Ghanaian father, both of whom were immigrants to the UK in the 70s, at a time when there were no blacks, no Irish and no dogs. Yes, it was up on the doors everywhere. Um, explains a little bit how they met, actually, the socioeconomic climate of the times. But uh, what do I do? Basically, for the last 10 years, I've been um, advocating for and championing the amazing West African flavors and ingredients I grew up eating and exploring. And I guess trying to guide people um, through the lens of my relationship with that cuisine and my identity and my journey with it. And just kind of bringing it to a new audience in some cases and getting the existing audience to maybe reimagine what Ghanaian food is or could be and just find new ways to, you know, to keep the food alive. Um, but also in some sense, I wouldn't say reinvent it, but yeah, re reimagine, you know, what does Ghanaian uh, cuisine look like in the 21st century in the society we live in and how, how can we put this cuisine on the map in the same way as any other kind of international cuisine, you know? So I've spent a lot of time in the last 10 years doing that. Um, I've done that through pop-ups, supper clubs, I uh, had a restaurant for a bit, I have a cookbook, Zoe's Garden Kitchen, lots of different types of catering. I speak on panels, I do cooking demos, I give talks. Um, basically, I love the sound of my own voice and I love the sound of... <laughs> Um, and I love talking about West African food, culture and ingredients, and I love celebrating that. And that's what I do. Mm. So th this is interesting because when you think about like your dual heritage in the fact that while Irish food is, I mean, I wouldn't say it's necessarily mainstream, but people are pretty familiar with it. And I understand <laughs> some of the reputations. <laughs> I know I had to do they think they know it's, it's all about potatoes for most people. <laughs> True. So why lean into Ghanaian cooking yeah, as opposed to like Irish cooking? Because I can see how like both introducing the general public to both is kind of vital at this point. So everyone understands <laughs> it's not just potatoes. But like, what was it that like drew you into one direction and opposed to another? Sure. Yeah. I mean... So I spent a great deal of, I mean, as I said, okay, I grew up in Southeast London for the most part, and I spent a couple of years as a baby and toddler in Ghana. Um, sorry, my phone wants to ring. No, not now. Um, and that was kind of the only time I spent in Ghana as a child. And my, my dad was kind of not uh, entirely present in my childhood. And when he came in to the picture, let's say when he was around, he always had this food. So food became A, my connection to him, but B, for both my parents as immigrants, actually food was really important as a connection to home and comfort and things like that. And I noticed that from a really, really young age. So that kind of became my thing about, oh, food is like, you know, it, it created this like inquiry for me about food and food culture. I mean, I didn't have the lexicon for that when I was eight, nine, 10, but that's what was going on in my mind, I think. Um, and most importantly, really, is I spent a lot of my childhood in Ireland because it was so close and so cheap to get to. Every available holiday was spent there. So I had a really strong sense of what Irish culture was, what Irishness looked like, um, even in a stereotypical sense. 
<laughs> and there were some stereotypes filled out, to be fair. Um, but I didn't have that relationship with my Ghanaian culture. We didn't have any Ghanaian family in London. So and we were like, you know, I, I lived in a council estate. We, did, we, we weren't wealthy and we couldn't afford regular trips to, to Ghana. So food became the lens with which I tried to focus on, you know, working out what's my relationship with Ghana? What does that look like? What is Ghana to me? And so food became the root that way. So that's why Ghanaian food has taken a prominence over Irish food, because it was really about a relationship with my roots and uh, research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Got you. Now, that word relationship, and I think, in you know, part I told people, pardon me if I lean into something <laughs> kind of outside the box in these conversations, because I think we've talked about COVID and racism and a couple of other things, like, uh, yeah, exhaustively, and we will continue to talk about it. So I wanted to take like this space to really just kind of talk about food and mm-hmm. like relationally, like how that looks for people. Um, so like you're, so, like you said, it it was about building a relationship and even though you didn't necessarily have like the person present, the food was present or like ever present. So for your relationship with food, when, like when you were a young person, like how did that transform you? Um, did you look at any other career paths before, before food? And, you know, how has like the, your relationship with food like enriched your life overall at this point? Um. That's a lot of questions. Um, okay, where do I begin with that? I think what's relationship with <laughs> um, Well, as I said, okay, so my relationship beyond just eating because you're hungry. <laughs> you know, I think Anisha Kennedy spoke to this a little bit recently with me about the politics. You know, she asked me whether, you know, food was political for me, and it is, and it always has been, especially in a professional context and I've only been a professional cook or chef for the last 10 years right but I've obviously had a relationship with this food all my life um so what does that relationship mean and look like well if I if I didn't if I hadn't had an inquiry into food from that young age if I didn't have that relationship with food I probably wouldn't have gone back to Ghana in 2013 to reconnect with my family if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have had a cookbook. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be um, have a stronger, deeper relationship with my family there and um, feel connected to that family. So in one sense, you know, this whole, I mean, ironically, you know, when I started going to the kitchen, I, I literally had maybe five or six recipes that my dad used to cook all the time. They were pretty traditional recipes. And I kind of like swung that about for six or seven months or eight months. And then I was like, hang on a minute. I'm running out of dishes here. <laughs> it's getting a bit boring. Um, so I had to like make my own investigations. And that investigation took me back to Ghana, as well as many other routes. But I don't know, to summarize what, you know, my relationship with food is super important because it forms a lot of my, my, my politics um, my sense and discussion around identity, it speaks into my intersectionality, it speaks into, um, you know, other big things I care about, such as environment and sustainability and things like that. So food is hugely important. And through food, I've been able to create a platform with which I can educate, inspire, empower, um, 
and make a difference in the world. So, you know, without food, I don't know what I'd be doing. But ironically, I had no intentions <laughs> of ever going into food. My first degree was in law because I am that good Ghanaian daughter that does what her father tells her to do. Ah, okay. And I, so I did a law degree. Um, and for 10 years, I had so many different kinds of jobs. I worked in PR, I worked in marketing, I worked in events, I was a band manager. I started a video production company. I basically didn't ever want to work for anybody else. That was very clear. Ah, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so I explored almost every available avenue in the world that I could probably have explored. Um, and food came, yeah, it was serendipitously, the universe kind of just pushed me in that direction. And it's all based around one dish, which is quite interesting because my favorite food growing up um, and actually one that my mum kept alive in our house rather than my dad. I mean, my dad introduced it to the household, but as I say, he wasn't uh, always there. But whenever he wasn't there, my mum would cook the dishes that we loved and she always cooked us peanut butter stew. Anyway, that was a dish I learned to make myself and would always cook it for friends and things like that. And it, it's one of the famous, in inverted commas, dinner party dishes that I used to make, right? And people used to bug the hell out of me constantly to keep making that. And actually I got bored. I was like, no, I'm not. You can come for dinner, but I'm not cooking that this time. <laughs> um, but anyway, fast forward to 2010. And I've been around the States traveling for a few months, had this amazing, inspiring journey, came back absolutely broke ass bitch. Um, and I needed to make some money. And Hackney Wick, which is where I live in East London, uh, 10 years ago was this industrial landscape of old factories, warehouses. It was basically this super creative community of people having experiencing the nice joy of being creative and paying low rent that doesn't exist anymore it was a beautiful time um but at that time there was no um shops bars restaurants or anything here that it wasn't gentrified as it is now so i saw an opportunity when thousands of people were flooding into the neighborhood to go to these artist open studios i thought well let me make some money and i made a big pot of peanut butter stew uh, i borrowed a pot i borrowed a table i borrowed an oven and I just cooked outside my front door. My friend made a sign saying Zoe's famous peanut butter stew. And you know what, babe? The smell just drew people in. The, the cheeky marketing drew people in. And the next thing you know, there's like a party outside my front door for four days solid. And people are, people had so many questions. Yeah, they had like, where is Ghana? I've never heard of Ghana. And I was like, what? Wow, you've never <laughs> seen a map. Okay. I mean, bear in mind that, you know, the majority of these people obviously weren't African or you know, they were white people in the main. I'm like, still, there's an atlas available. You can find it. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of people just had never heard of the cuisine, never heard of anything to do with Ghana. And I was so surprised. And that kind of, I guess, triggered something in me, in my mind. And they wanted me to keep doing that. And I was like, mm, I'm not going to do this again. <laughs> I've got a career. <laughs> um, did you know? <laughs> I know. And then a year later... So I just carried on freelancing, doing whatever I was doing. And then a year later, that same weekend of the festival, we decided to turn this place into a restaurant. And we really like went to town with it. Um, and I'm eternally grateful for my friends who helped me do that. And, you know, we built, we actually built like tables and chairs, out recycled wood and stuff. I went to Ridley Road in um, Dalston, which is a part of East London. And we have this huge, amazing African market set. And I basically bought up loads of African fabric. Um, 
and designed the Ghana Kitchen playlist and Spotify. And I was like, you know what, if I'm doing this, I'm going to throw everything into it. And we made it into a restaurant and people, it was just packed out all weekend and people thought they were in a restaurant and they were trying to book for the Wednesday. They're trying to book for a month now. They were trying to book. And I was like, guys, this is my office. This is my living room. And that's where my dining table should be. This isn't actually a restaurant, but I love that you're into it. And if I do it again, I'll let you know. So I just collected email addresses. And before I knew it, you know, people were telling other people, then picked up on blogs and da 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 da. And it was a thing. And I was still trying to fight it because I was trying to do an MA in creative writing at Goldsmiths. And I was like, why? But because I was having so much fun, I mean, I was literally just having the biggest dinner parties um, and just, you know, just bringing people together over food. People were making friends. People were going, I was, I was like Scylla Black, you know. <laughs> I was like Cilla Black and I was like Oprah. It, it was like all of the person. You, you, you're bringing people together who don't have anything to say to each other outside of this space. Mm. And they're having an engaged conversation. And then, you know, people are making friends. People are finding jobs. It was like a networking, dating, problem <laughs> resolution council. And it was all happening over food. But it was so much fun. But I was still like, oh, I'm going to be a writer. I don't know what this is about, but <laughs> stop pushing me. And so I went to, I moved, I ended up moving to Berlin because I, I had a summer in Berlin to write and I did a pop-up there. And before I, and then that got reviewed in like the German timeout. And then before I knew it, my inbox was full of Germans trying to book for it there. And I was like, what the hell is happening? Your subconscious was your enemy at this point. <laughs> um, and before, yeah, before I knew it, I was in the German press, I was in the British press, I had a following in Berlin, I had a following in London, and I was like, okay, what is happening? I need to figure out what this is about. Why? Why are people so attracted to this? And the main reasons what were, to be honest, is that there, while there were hundreds and hundreds of really great traditional eating spots, they were places that existed just for the community, you know? They weren't really trying to invite anybody else into that space, and that's absolutely fine. Um, but I felt like, well, there's clearly a need here to bridge that gap because people can't engage with the cuisine if they don't know where they can feel safe. Do you mean safe in inverted commas, where they can feel welcome kind of thing. So that's what I did. I created the space. It was just a big kind of fun dining party experience. Um, and I made it safe for everybody to come and eat and chill and relax. And that's pretty much what I've been doing. I've just been in different ways, you know, like mobile catering, street food, supper clubs, as I said, all those different ways. Um, and I'm not going to lie, I have completely forgotten what the actual question was because... You're fine. You still, you're still answering it. Um, do you remember the first time you felt comfortable or I guess not comfortable for lack of a better word, where you felt empowered enough to like call yourself a chef? This is a really good question because when I started, I was like, I'm a cook. And that was because I had no airs and graces about what I was doing. It was just like, I'm just cooking food. I'm a cook. And what I hadn't expected to happen was there to be a whole conversation around the difference between a cook and a chef. And I was like, honestly, who gives a shit? <laughs> That's what I thought. I really did. In the first few years, I was just like, why does everybody have a problem with like what you call yourself? And I think it, it, it wasn't until, and honestly, I, I, did, I, I didn't feel comfortable calling myself a chef at first because I, I didn't have any culinary training, you know, I was self-taught and I hadn't done that traditional route. And I thought, okay, if they want, you know, if it's important, 
because I wasn't aware of its importance because I was outside of the industry, right? So there was no weight attached to that word for me. Other than chef cooks, cook cooks, whatever. Right. Um, but it wasn't in, and so I was really careful in the beginning to be like, I'm just a cook, leave me alone. And it wasn't until 2017, I think, when, or maybe 2016, 2017, book came out. And, you know, I had my restaurant in Brixton. And I was like, well, hang on, what, what does it mean? Like, what does that mean if you're a chef versus a cook? And in this industry, with the, the structure that this industry has right now, it is kind of important to get that label under your belt because people don't take you seriously on one level, right? So that was the moment I was like, okay, I've turned out probably a couple of hundred thousand meals at this point. So yeah, I was just like, yeah, whatever. Call me a chef. Who cares? Like, but honestly, who cares? Yeah. The only people that care is the, like the industry and the people who've like worked up the notches they think they had to work up to get that title. And like, I do understand that there's value in it and there's value in that process, but I don't know that that process should necessarily be the only process by which person becomes a chef. So true. True. Now, because you, because you took a very like non-traditional, well, what most people consider kind of a non-traditional route into like the restaurant world and and into like the, the title of chef, at what point did you find yourself kind of intersecting with the traditional like business models and the traditional model of food because like it, yeah. there's a there's a luxury to like being able to be kind of an outsider because you don't have to you don't feel that you don't have that internal narrative about like these this weird arbitrary set of rules in food and right. so like to all of a sudden have your life slammed up against it like did you find like some like resistance from those working in like the more traditional spaces or did you have like an easier time kind of moving in and out I mean, look, I have never really wanted to or tried to ingratiate myself within that industry because I'm so far removed from it. And I was really happy um, doing my thing, head down, blah, 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 blah. And honestly, I was probably better off in that space for the reasons that you're you're saying, because you don't have, there's no expectation, there's no kind of... um, pressure and there's no I I didn't feel any part of pressure I didn't feel that I had to justify myself to anybody uh I wasn't competing with anybody because there was nobody doing what I did right but then after the cookbook came out I think there was a bit of a shift and I think when the cookbook came out and the publicity around it I mean they did a good ish job with the publicity (laughs) right because they got it all the places that they wanted to get it, which right. weren't necessarily the places that I wanted it to be in. But, <clears throat> uh, you know, so through the white supremacy lens, <laughs> publicity went well. Yeah, well, <laughs> all, all um, the white people have your book now. You're like, thanks. Yeah. That was, that was but, great. <laughs> you know, I, I just had a, I, I had and I still have a huge resistance to, to, you know, how the industry operates and all of that because I'm not in, I'm just not it. I'm not part of it. It's not a bit of me at all. You know, I'm not upper white middle class person. I'm not from the types of universities. I don't, I'm from a different postcode. I'm from a different class. I look different. I vibe different, you know. So I don't, I've never cared too much um, about what anybody thinks of me. But there are certain times when 
you know, you really feel how different you are, like at awards ceremonies or at like these kind of industry events. And I've always, like I've always stood out a hundred miles, not least because I'm six foot tall with an Afro, but <laughs> just because I am usually the only black person in the room, apart from the people serving drinks and, you know, all of the micro macro aggressions that happen to you when you're in that space as that person. And so I haven't really tried to be in it too much. And I've, I've just always tried to keep my, an arm's length from it because I don't know, I brushed up about, in 2017, I brushed up against it too much in a way that made me feel really negative about myself. And mm. it, it kind of made me feel like I had to compete with people in that industry or be on a level of certain other people. And it's like, it, actually, I don't, you know. I, and it, but it took me two years. I think it wasn't until like early 2019, I was like, you know what? Fuck this shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? This isn't my space. This right. isn't my people. It's like, slow your roll. You're actually starting to chase dreams that you that weren't yours, you know? Mm. I didn't I started pursuing avenues that that weren't really what I wanted. It's what I thought the industry expected me to do next, or where I thought um in this new field of competitiveness, it's where I where I had to be or something. I don't know. But it definitely took me on a different tangent that only caused grief and stress and self-doubt and stuff mm. like that. So yeah. I had that blip for two years and then I came back to myself and I was like, yeah, Shiri Bond. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite things, like in watching most of like the talks you've sat in on or listening to any of your interviews, um, one thing that kind of, the one theme that pops up over and over again is this idea of like owning your power or like standing in your power or walking in your power. Where, where did that come from for you? What was it that kind of like, what, what was the, the, the click in your head that was just like, that's what this is? Because I think a lot of people experience something, but don't have the, the language to articulate it just yet. So when you finally like find the right words for it and you can express it to other people, you know, that's the next, that's kind of the next shift. It's when the, when the thought gets bigger. So where, what was the seed of that thought for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's not going to be a short answer. But no problem. We have time. <laughs> it's, it's um, you know, it's a process, to be honest. It's, it's really a process. But for me, a few different things were going on, okay? So I had, um, in 2019, a lot of different shit went down for me. I had some real trouble with some staff and... You know, it was a very difficult financial year. And then I had this schedule that I, you know, I spent eight or nine years just working seven days a week, working 16, 17 hours a day, and thinking this is the way I'm supposed to do it. <laughs> this is just what it's supposed to be like. I remember those times. Yeah. yeah. And um, I ended up in hospital, basically, really, really ill. Um, with suspected, suspected meningitis. And that was sort of the end of the festival season. And I really had to have a little, you know, I, after that, I was like, wow, like, what is happening? Like, this wasn't your dream, you know, like, so what's going on? Like, what, where's your work-life balance? Is this even what you want to be doing? Like, why are you killing yourself, traipsing around the country to do street food on top of catering, on top of everything else, on top of the panels, on top of the things you don't get paid for? And I had this moment where I just took a, uh, I gave myself three months off and I went to New York to see my wife and I just, I just spent that time kind of convalescing, deep thinking. I sort of dived into like my spirituality, my growth personally and professionally. And 
I was listening to lots, I was reading lots of interesting things again. You know, I was doing things I hadn't done for years, like just reading <laughs> and listening to podcasts and just like taking that time to learn and grow and learn and grow. And I was also at the same time um, trying to get sober. And I think that was a big, big part of it, actually, in the sobriety. Because, you know, especially in this industry, you, you lean on alcohol so much. And I just realized that... I'm not, not trying to say that the industry made me an alcoholic. It really didn't. I mean, I, I was, but it definitely wasn't a safe environment for mental health in terms of, oh, in terms of my relationship with alcohol and leaning on it the way I was leaning on it, at, you know, it, it, in places where I shouldn't have been, like at these award ceremonies, at these kind of events and stuff. And so I just took, took everything back to basics and just kind of looked in. And what I realised was, A... I'm really funny and charming and intelligent without beer or wine. <laughs> I'm fine. That's true. That's great. I'm great sober. <laughs> and then I also realized that the reason people, and this was just a lot of introspection and deep thinking, the reason that my business was successful was because of me. Right. It was because of my voice. It was because of what I wanted to say and how I was saying it. And, you know, the, when, when I first heard that in my mind, I was like, what? What? Me? What do you mean, me? My voice? My love? And it was just over the process of a couple of months. I was like, shit, that is it. This is just about my power is my voice. Mm. And I, I was like sitting there like woman and I with my meditation waiting for <laughs> my higher power to send me instructions. <laughs> Tell me, Lord, what am I supposed to be doing? And it was just this one morning I just woke up and I was like, you and I, I literally said to myself, you fucking idiot. Your power is your voice. All of our power is our story. And interestingly enough, it's like, and if I rewind 10 years ago, that was my whole bit back then, right? It was like, own your story, own your narrative, you know, set the agenda. And so that's where I am again, 10 years later. I'm just going back to the beginning, actually, just taking out all the bullshit that scrapes up on me in the middle. So I've just gone back to me. And it's like, my authentic self is my lived experience, is my uh, joy, you know, well, all my good and all my bad parts are what make me me. And I've just embraced mm-hmm. all of it. I've just learned to embrace it all because it is all feeds into me being able to have these conversations, right? Yeah. Every, every experience has built me to be who I am today. And I'm grateful for every single little bit of it, no matter how yeah. hard it was. Because through those scars and tortures and whatever, you know, hard work and learnings and blah, 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 and with the happy stuff as well, you know, that's how we grow. That's the fastest way to grow is through the pain and you get through the pain You come out the other side and you've learned something about yourself and you've grown. And yeah, and so I think what I've realized is in that few months of doing this, like diving into spirituality and self-care and, um, and I just picked up a lot of new language around this. And I've been like, why has this been hiding? Has this been hiding from black people? Is this like another thing that they hide from black people? (laughs) This simple message that you are enough. Yeah. Because that's all we need to know, right? We are enough. Like every morning I wake up, I do my, I do my mirror exercises, babe. Do you want me to tell you what I say to myself in the mirror? Every morning I say, I am powerful and I am loved. 
I am powerful and I am loving. I am powerful and I love it. And you know what? That makes me smile every morning when I say that. I look myself in the eye and that just puts me, it doesn't matter if, if, you know when you wake up and you've got like, oh man, that bill I need to pay or that client is a dickhead or that person annoyed me or whatever just jumps into your head. And as soon as I say that, I am, an, and then I say, I am enough. My experience is valid. And that sets me up for the day to just, every day it's like, whatever I do or say, none of it's wrong. None mm. of it's wrong. You know, so I just want people, I just want to encourage people to understand that, that you are enough, your experience is valid. Um, and the minute you realize that your power is you, <laughs> your authentic self, it's that simple, but it's quite a big thing to get your head around at first. But once you do, it's like, I just got to be me and I just got to be the best version of me I can possibly be under grace for the good of all and jobs, oh, you know, and then every day is good. You know, oh, yeah. well, you it's just incredible to kind of like hear you talk about the timeline because, you know, like me asking you the question about when you started to see kind of some intersection into like kind of traditional spaces. And mm -hmm. so you could see like the minute when we find ourselves in those what we think are like these standards. And I think it happens to black people more times than not because of white supremacy and how systems are built is that in order to fit into these to be successful, you have to diminish yourself. And, yeah. and as you can tell, like you diminished yourself for so long that you essentially almost disappeared like exactly. physically as well. And so it was just like, your, even your body was like, what are you doing? Like, you're trying to take us out. <laughs> like, I need you to take a minute and sit down for a second. You have to physically be present. So you, you know, you to diminish yourself over and over and over again, thinking that you have to be smaller to fit into a room that you aren't necessarily, that you're bigger than. And so That's it was just like. Not... I just wrote this thing. Let me tell you, I just wrote this thing that said, <laughs> And it was about, I was describing this evening at the Observer Food Monthly Awards, which was the first time that I got invited to go to that, right? And when that invitation came, it was fancy-ass invitation with like gold calligraphy, my name in gold. And I was like, mm. I was like so excited. I was so fucking grateful. It's disgusting. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's like, oh, I got the keys, y'all. Yeah. But then even on that invitation, so you're excited to get it. And then I looked at the address for where it was and it said Freemasons Hall. And I was like, huh? What is that? Freemasons Hall? Is that? And then it's like, it just gets your mind thinking, what does that mean? Does that mean they're all Masons? Am I walking into like a, a Ku Klux Klan event? Like what happens in this space when there's not an award happening? Like very and, Da Vinci code. It's like, no. Yeah. And, it, and it's like from that point onwards, like you're already on the defensive a little bit, right? Because, you know, it's like, okay, so this is going to be super white and there's potentially loads of racists there beyond what I already know to be fairly racist industry. So yeah. this will be fun. But, it, you know, that, even that, that, the, the 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 limiting beliefs and the negative thoughts that start, that can just set off a chain of bullshit yeah. for you, you know, and it, and it will affect the tone of the whole night. Yep. Let alone whatever you know microaggressions are put upon you when you're in the space. So it's like it's a lot. And yeah, I think that that is as you described exactly what happened. I was like on like riding free and nice, doing my own thing, you know. And I was celebrating all my wins up until that point as well. I was like, yeah. Bitch, empire, bah, bah, bah. but then after you know 
the complications around, you know, how the book came out, all of the mm. things that, you know, being pushed in, in among these people that I had no relationship with, like no, nothing in common and constantly feeling like I was being used in a tokenistic way, constantly feeling like my work and voice wasn't valued, but yet you wanted me to be everywhere all the time, but you didn't want to pay me. Um, you know, it, it just felt like constantly not only being censored or um, devalued, but also, um, you know, making me think, you know, why is it in 10 years that a food critic had never attended any of my events or residencies or my restaurant? Why is that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and all of that stuff builds up on you because you start to think, am I not good enough? The reality mm. is, is I am great. I am good enough. It's just that they don't want to pay attention to what I'm doing because it doesn't suit oh, the narrative right. of what they want to talk about. Okay. So, yeah, it was, the you know, a lot of my mental health over the last couple of years has been impacted by how I've been positioned in the media or not. And it's like, I don't actually want to be worried about that anymore. I don't care. Like, I don't need that space because it doesn't do anything for me. I was taught that it did something for me, but it doesn't do anything for me whatsoever. <laughs> like nothing, <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's that process of, you know, look, we have to like unpick what we, we've been told is true, right? Um, and we can't do that until we step into our power, which is why I'm, I'm trying to get everybody to step in. <laughs> like, come on, everybody. I know it, the one thing we used to, like, you know, my mom was that person for us growing up. Like, she was the person always, yeah, actually, my dad, too. Like, they, they always had those lessons for us. They, like, my dad was always his affirmation. And I don't think he realized that's what he was doing. Because <laughs> if I asked my dad, if I pose it to him this way, he'd probably look at me like I was slightly crazy. But his the <laughs> constant daily affirmation we used to get from him is that your leaders are not followers. And like mm-hmm. to hear that your entire life. So it echoes over like everything we do. And I have four siblings. And so like no matter what spaces we're in, no matter what activity is happening, once we enter a space, everyone's kind of like, oh, you guys know what you're doing. And I'm like, I just got here. I don't even know any of you. What are you talking about? <laughs> and they're just like, but you know what you're doing. So like, can you lead this entire thing? And I'm just like, okay. And you, we don't say no because yeah. we, we aren't, we presume we do know. And so, cause we've been told all our lives that we, we do and that we can. And so like my mom, you know, as we got older, one thing she used to impress upon us is that we need to, t- we need to take up room. We are big people. She's like, your energy is big. So you can never go into a space and diminish yourself because that means that whatever you brought to that space, they no longer get. And so as I've gotten older, I've realized that, you know, a lot of times the challenge, one of my biggest challenges was like white supremacy and then oppression overall, whether it's like gender oppression, um, uh, race oppression, like any of those oppression in and of itself, the, yeah. the idea only works if everyone is if everyone feels like they can fit themselves into a very small room, if you're mm. prepared to diminish yourself and pick yourself off and like cut yourself up and, and chisel yourself down to such a, in such a way that everyone can fit into this tiny room, because, you know, all of those systems are built on um, scarcity. If you have, I can't have, if you are, I can't be. Exactly. And so when you live kind of like in a scarcity mindset, you need the room to be small in order for you to look and appear big. Whereas like black people tend to take up a lot of room automatically. We are big. We, we consume cultures. We eclipse 
rooms when we're in them. And that's just our natural state of being. The thing is, we're also very generous and we will welcome you into the light. We will welcome you into our space and into our air because we have enough of it for everybody. So if everyone would, you know, remember that when they go into any space now, like I don't have to diminish myself to fit into your room. Your room mm. is too small anyway. Let me be big. Let, I'll take everybody in because I also <laughs> look at your biggest cultural icons. Like Beyonce invites all people. <laughs> no, there's no person that is not invited into her into her shine. You can participate. It's it's fine. You're invited. And yeah. so I just feel like it's you know we're natural. You know that's why I think cooking and feeding people is so much a part of what we do because it's our way of like sharing our light and putting our energy into your space and most people do they get attached they're just kind of like can we do this more can you write a book can you open a restaurant can you bring can you invite me to your house how about you and they want they just want all the parts of you at this point and you're constantly you're constantly asked to do things and I think where we start to see it become laboring instead of just like a labor of love is like there is no value exchange at that point Exactly. You have you need to pay me for my time and my energy because while this energy is big, it doesn't necessarily mean it's infinite. And I have to like exactly. replenish and I, I need to, you know, I get depleted as well. So if you aren't giving back to me and valuing who I am and my time, then that depletes me even faster. And then I can't do and be who you ask me to be. So yeah, I just I completely get that. Like watching your story and your relationship with like your food and your life and you went from like taking up as much space as possible and people celebrating that to okay I have to diminish myself to fit into these very weird rooms that I wasn't like really wanting to be in anyway and then like your body physically revolts on you and is like well if you're doing this we're out of here I don't know how to help you at this point we can't even support these choices for your mind to go okay let's return back to who you are. Let's go back to who you are. And like my mom, she's, she's always been that person that talks about understanding the power of who you are and Mm -hmm. realizing like self-love is like paramount in order for you to do anything in life. And so it's constantly like, if we're struggling with something and I like make a phone call and have a conversation with her, it always ends with who are you? Are you loving yourself? Yes. You know what I mean? So she's like, cause you cannot ask people for things that you're not willing to give to yourself. And so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go for it. You, you can't you can't give anything unless you've got something overflowing to give yeah. that's the other yeah. thing like I found myself running like literally with fumes in the tank you know so many times and people would be like you're crazy like I was at Port Elliot I mean the geography of this won't make sense to you but we were trading at a festival in Dorset, which is like Southwest England. And, you know, when you're trading at a festival doing street food, you are literally on your feet, like 16, 17 hours a day. There's just no getting away from that, right? And you've got, you're serving thousands of meals a day. And I went from there after service to drive six hours to do a cooking demo. And I had to drive because I was nowhere near a train station, um, blah, blah, blah. And I get there, I do the demo, and then I have to turn around and drive all the way back. Yeah. I did that for no money. <laughs> it's like, what? The actual, what are you doing? And everyone thought I was crazy. And I was like, yeah, but you know, those people, they need to. It's like, no, they're all right. They're in a field getting wasted. Probably they, they wouldn't have given 10 shits of whether I was there or not in the end. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But I felt 
a responsibility. And actually, I want to bring this, mention this actually, because I think a lot of the reason that I flayed myself so hard for so long was because I knew the responsibility I had as for that moment in time, being the only representative mm. in that space, because you can only have one black face at a time. So suddenly I was representing all the black faces in food or, you know, whether they said that overtly or not, that's how it felt. Yeah. And therefore I had this huge responsibility. It's like, so I remember somebody in, interviewing me and saying, why do you work so hard? And I said, well, I have to, because I cannot let my business fail because I, I the responsibility on my shoulders isn't just for my business to survive for me, but for everybody yeah. behind me, right? It's like yeah. this business cannot fail because it is like, as far as I'm concerned, it represents a new wave of an idea around food and culture. It represents people having a signpost to success that they could have. It represents um, a new conversation around food culture, food identity. It's like, if, if I... And I had a lot of things going against me. You know, it was a bootstrap. I'm bootstrapped. I've never had investment. I've never had big loans. Da, da, da. You know, I started it with a 20 quid in my pocket and I've just always reinvested, reinvested, reinvested. But the number of times I came close to bankruptcy, probably about three times in the last two years. But I refused to fail because yeah. I'm not going to be that black woman's business who failed. Nuh-uh. Yeah. Not after yeah. all no of this. <laughs> and it's funny because I, I I had a chat with uh, Kiana Mickey and she she um, does uh, she works for a food justice um, organization here in the Bronx and that came up about how Black women have we inherit um, the Titanic and not cruise ships mm. so we end up like getting like these either huge messes things that are already falling apart things that are barely hanging on and we you know keep them afloat we rebuild them we keep them going. And we talked about failure and it was something, and I told them, I'm like, I have to revisit this because it's a lengthier conversation. But to your point about the weight for Black people to always be successful is because the success is not personal. I think that's mm. like, it's a very, it's a very interesting space of white privilege to be able to be successful just for yourself. Um, for us, it's like, we... It's a really, just on that note, to speak to it really quickly, is also, it's, white privilege to be able to bankrupt yourself five six seven eight times and yeah. not be worried about it right. just... and so it's incredible because it's like how is failure privilege like you can even fail like your privilege allows you to fail and it allows you to use things like well I don't fail I just learn lessons and start again like you get permission to like reframe your failure in a way that is still uplifting you can spin it in any way you want to, where black people, you fail, you fail. You made a series of bad choices. You don't know how to manage money. Like there's so many connotations attached to it. And to have the luxury of failure so you can just kind of sit in the lesson and like, again, spin it and like really be honest about, okay, that wasn't necessarily a failure. It was like, I did something. It didn't work out for as long as I wanted it to. And now I'm moving on to something new. We don't get that privilege. Mm -hmm. However, in the interest of time, <laughs> what I wanted to, I know I'm like, we could be here for three hours, but no one has that kind of day. Um, this is not a Lord of the Rings. Like, <laughs> um, let's, do like, let's do this in three parts. You know, I, there's a couple of people I'm like, we're going to have to do a part two because there's a lot to unpack. Um, 
you know, I think both of you, both, both you and myself are on this wavelength of, of kind of like burn the shit down. Let's build our own shit or just, Hey, let's not burn their shit down. Let's just go build our own shit. Like you can keep your stuff. It's not going to be great if we all depart, <laughs> keep it and try. Um, and to that vein, like I understand there are a number of challenges, some, mon- some monumental, some are just a shift in your thinking. Um, but for me, I honestly believe like we can do this. Like, I don't see like there was all the institutions we are talking about, all the corporations we are talking about at some point they didn't exist. Exactly. They had to be built as well. They had to be funded as well. And while, you know, the funding might've been easier and building it might've been simpler, it still didn't exist at some point. And it was, you know, they, it was no, they didn't take up any space and now they do. So I feel like we have the same opportunity, like, okay, just because it doesn't exist now, doesn't necessarily mean that it can't, it should, and we should. And so for me, it's like, yes, there are, you know, there's financing and there's, um, there's all types of things that have to be, have to be overcome, but that's no different than most businesses. Like all businesses, businesses need funding to exist on some level, um, yeah. whether that funding comes easily or doesn't is not for me, part of the conversation. Um, there's a lot of money in the black community. I mean, we spend, I think in 2018, just in like travel, just traveling around the globe. Um, we spent upwards of like 65 million dollars in just one year traveling as a community that's a lot of money to spend and you know like and i tell people just to you know in it as crude as it sounds slavery black bodies at the time the current the modern equivalent it was a 300 billion dollar business so our our bodies alone, though, were worth $300 billion. Our bodies, our labor, were, they went to war over it. So in the, in the crudest of ways in expressing it, just our physical being and our labor is worth a war. It is worth $300 billion. And while they will not openly admit that, <laughs> it is just a, it's a fact of the economics. You went to war. You were prepared to succeed the union to keep these bodies working. Yeah. So if the if if the oppressor saw our physical bodies as worth three hundred billion dollars in an economy and willing to go to war over, knowing who we are, knowing our own minds and our own intelligence, how much more are we worth? Well, how much more can we do under our own exactly um, so steam exactly so like to frame it as a question. What, like in your like super honest opinion, what what does this look like moving forward, building our own spaces? Because we know it's worth it and we know it has to happen. But like in a practical and like pragmatic sense, like what does that look like? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a big question and there's lots of answers and we don't know yet which ones are going to be the right ones. But we definitely need to start thinking about what that looks like. For me, as you know, you've heard me many times and for the culture every week, I'm like, step into your goddamn fucking power. Make your own businesses. That's <laughs> you know? but it's, um, I need to swear less, maybe, and maybe I'll convince more people. But it's, look, it's, it is really simple, as you said, right? Where we are right now is society has been constructed by the few for the benefit of the few to control the many. Everything around us every day is just an idea that somebody had 
That's all it is. It's just an idea that somebody had. And you know what? Most of those ideas excluded us. Most of those ideas not just excluded us, but were created to oppress us, like specifically. (laughs) So if you just think about that for a second and like really let that settle in, I think Steve Jobs famously said that as well. Um, You know, everything around you is just somebody, somebody had an idea to make it. And if you can wake up every day and have an idea to change the world, and you can, the problem that holds us all back is the how, right? So that's what we've got to stop worrying about. Here's, here's how this society grew up around us. It's through connectedness. It's through nepotism. It's through networking. It's through all those secret societies and handshakes and golf courses and men's clubs and all those systems of oppression that exist all, all parts of society. Now, there is no reason why we can't use the same kind of ideas right. to build our own networks, our own power structures and our own institutions that will actually serve us well and serve us better And there doesn't need to be a big concern about how to do that because with each and every idea, if it's a good enough idea, if it's a big enough idea, and if the change is at the end of its realization, big enough to change what's happening now, then you will find the tribe. The tribe will come. The tribe will gather around you to make it happen, right? Yeah. And here's a prime example. You look at how Black Food Folks started. It's less than two years old, right? Just an idea to get some representation, some community together around black people in food and beverage. Now look how fast and how quickly they've grown, right? And that has been my inspiration model for Black Book because as many problems as the States has, obviously, I'm going to list them all now, in terms of how the black community in food and beverage, whether it's Radical Exchange, whether it's um, black food folks, there are so many organizations that exist to bring the community together now in that bringing of the community together is power like it's that's that's just it there's power in that connection because you you share knowledge you share contacts you share a network that is how you build business yeah you don't you don't you don't start a business or some people do who are super privileged they start with like a couple of million in the bank but actually it starts with an idea it starts with gathering a community around that idea and then you'll attract the money. You'll attract yeah. the things you need to make it happen. That's just Absolutely. how the world works. And so that's what Black Book is. You know, it's this bold vision. It's a global platform of representation in food and beverage. And it's there simply to create wealth, to create, uh, to give platforms, um, to spread equity and build community in F&B for people who don't have a community right now. But the idea is for a globally connected platform that also, incidentally, uh, has consultancy attached to it, has mentoring attached to it, has kind of this holistic approach to representation just beyond, great, you look like you might be interesting in five years, go off, do your work and come back when you can give me some 20%. Yeah. So we're not about that. It's about actually hand-holding you through the process. What do you want to be? Where do you want your food journey to go? We'll help you shape your career. We'll give you the network you need. We'll give you the training you need, the executive coaching you might need, and self-esteem work you might need. Whatever it is that you need to get you to the next stage of your career, that's what Black Book wants to do. And it's more, most importantly for me is connecting institutions around the globe that think like that, mm. that understand 
that that's where our power is. It's like we don't actually need to worry. I mean, it, it is necessary, the work that these institutions have to do. Absolutely necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's our job to handhold them through those changes, but they can certainly pay me a consultancy fee, for sure. I'll come in and talk to you about what you need to do and how you might be able to do it better. But for them to do the deep work, to unpick hundreds of years of systemic racism, which means then like taking themselves down from the table. Yeah. They ain't about to do that anytime yeah. soon. So in my perspective, I'm thinking, you know, maybe my grandchildren might get to see a different looking <laughs> world, you know, like yeah. meaningfully, not just tokenistic, not just virtue signaling. Yeah. There might be some meaningful systemic institutional range having had change having happened. By the time I have grandchildren, I pray to God that there is. But in the meantime, I'm in my 40s. I ain't got time to wait for that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm going to build my what I think good representation looks like. I'm going to build what I think good community looks like. I'm right. going to build, and not just for me, for everybody else who I think might benefit from that. Right. Um, and, you know, so far, you know, it's just, and it's still just an idea, Right. There's yeah. no, there's no, I don't have offices in New York, Paris, and right. <laughs> this is me talking well, to you on Zoom. But what I have is Anna, uh, Anna Sudan Massing, Frankie Reddit as my co founders, who are amazing, inspirational women who I know care about exactly the same things that I care about. I have Eileen Toom and Fozia Ishmael as contributing panelists at the moment for the decolonization of the food industry talks. But I hope that as this goes further on, I'll be able to bring them in in a more structured way to how this company and this idea grows and it, and it will grow and it will change shape and it will develop. But the point is it exists now. And because yeah. it exists, it means that maybe in California or maybe in South Africa or maybe in Hamburg, somebody else is going to be like, shit, yeah, we should do that. And even if, that, if, even if that's all that happens, even if Black Book doesn't get to be the vision it wants to be, at least it started the process of letting people know that it could be, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. And, and that's, that's all we need is, like, more of I, that. I think people, they really do kind of that how, that how they get stuck on. And I just, you know, the, the billionaires that people get, like bent out of shape about are the ones who didn't worry about how there's like, you know, even within the 1%, there's these separate tribes about how you made your money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so someone like Bill Gates, who's done a little jail time before, you know, built Microsoft out of like, you know, pretty much nothing. He was just not like, historically, he is not the guy who becomes a billionaire if you look at his life. And so his trajectory to where he is now is, you know, for me, it makes sense. He created something that didn't exist before that eventually he talked, he knew the whole world would eventually need. He has a tremendous amount of foresight. Like, you know, some people just do. Um, Steve Jobs, same thing. Like, he ended up moving back home to his parents' house. He worked for, worked on Apple out of his base, out of his garage. He didn't have a ton of startup. People thought he was absolutely nuts. And it was like the home computer. What? Come on, man. Like, seriously, we've seen these computers in movies. They take up entire rooms. What are you talking about? So even those particular gentlemen, like those like kind of pantheon personalities in business, where they didn't have anything. Like no one was giving them money to do anything. They didn't give them money till these ideas were proven. And then even at some point when they were proven, they fired Steve Jobs. Yeah, they fired Steve Jobs from yeah. Apple. 
They were like, you're still nuts. We still don't really respect what you're doing here. Because again, he has a, she had a tremendous amount of foresight. He could look into the future a little bit and see that there's something coming along and we have to stay ahead of it. So like right around the time they were developing the, um, the iPod, they told mm-hmm. him he was crazy. We were living on CDs at that point. Come on, man. What the hell are you talking about? What do you mean iPod and digital music? What the hell? And so they fired him. <laughs> so, and it's like now you literally can play music from like six different platforms. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's streaming. And so, you know, for me, I'm just like, I think if, I believe that if Black people understand that the internal messaging, not just within yourself, but within the community, is really built on a lie. So in order for a lot of these ideas within our community to take off, we have to spend dollars within our, within our own community. We have to spend money with each other. And yeah. it's, you know, and scarcity is the, is the main message behind white supremacy. There's not enough. Yeah. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep the little bit that I have. And so that messaging has been constantly part of our lives. There's not enough. So that messaging is money- what keeps poor people poor, babes. That is what keeps poor people exactly. poor. And it's bullshit. And I'm yeah. with you on this. It's like we have to like stop ingesting this. Uh, it's like it's almost like poison, actually. Yeah. Poison that tells you you can't have it all. You can't have what your you know your dream can't be real. If you have a dream, like if you've had a dream, that means it's possible. I'm here to tell you, if you have a dream, it is possible. It's all you've got to do possible. is start. It's like. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a huge amount of unpicking to do from society. And, you know, some of our parents have inherited that. Some of our friends have inherited that. We, we, yeah. It's really hard for us to be able to walk in, in, in fresh skin almost, you know. It's like yeah. you kind of yeah. have to peel off everything that you've thought and been taught and learned about how the world operates because actually the universe has abundance for everybody right and mm-hmm. you'd be like well, where's that money going to come from well it's yeah. going to come from wherever it was last basically exactly. It's, exactly. it's just energy everything is just energy it just keeps moving i it thank you keeps... i thank you for saying that. It's, it's just like <laughs> money is you know money is kind of the, it's just a, a material expression of abundance in one in one plane or another in one way or another and resources look a lot of different ways you know like the money in this country bent depending on inflation and a number of things sometimes the dollar is actually worth a dollar sometimes the dollar is worth 40 cents so it's like if you're driven by cash and you think everything has to have a conversation of cash then you're going to be in trouble i mean if you look at the system of wealth in this country most wealth is built on debt and not yeah. even your own debt, other people's debt. So, you know, the most well, the wealthiest corporations figure out how to leverage debt. And think about this, babe. America's been bankrupt for the, lo- the last 20 years. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's a bankrupt oh country. God. And it still thinks it's the wealthiest country in the world. That is a state of mind. Come you know on. what I'm saying? It's a state Come of on. mind. You know, we're, they, the country is just delusional enough to believe they're still the number one country in the world. And while I find that to be a bit of psychosis, I understand where it comes from. I think you do need a healthy bit of that to really get on in life, but not to the place, not to the point where you're delusional and you don't see any of your blind spots. Yeah. I mean, debt isn't a bad thing as long as you can no. afford to pay it. Yeah, people exactly. have mortgages. That isn't a bad debt. People use an overdraft to dip into that's not a bad debt as long right. as you can handle the amount of debt you have and it's there for a good reason like 
you're right. This is a whole thing. We need to have lots more conversations <laughs> around this. Because, and it comes down to the basic thing of just the language you use around it yeah. as well. If you're constantly thinking in a negative way, you're going to attract negative shit. If you're constantly thinking, I don't have enough, I can't afford it, um, I'm never going to earn that much, I'm, I'm not worth it. All of that type of thinking is scarcity thinking. Put that shit on its head and be like, you know what? The universe has my back. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you to our guests for spending some time with us. And thank you for listening in and for being a part of the Flyest Click in podcasting. If you love these conversations, be sure to download, subscribe, comment, and share. You can get further connected with the Afros and Knives community by following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And don't forget to visit our website, afrosandknives.com, and sign up for our newsletter. Afros and Knives does this work only with the financial support of our Patreon community. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com backslash Afros and Knives and pledge your monthly support. We are working on expanding into video as well as offering patron-only content this year, and you don't want to miss out. Until next week, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be at peace.